What do you do when everything in the world seems to be changing at a crazy rapid pace? How do we know that the career we've decided to follow or the business we've built is the right business and it can sustain all the change that's coming down the pike. I don't know if you live in the uncertain times that we are living in or if you're tuning it all out, but this is a real problem that we face, especially when you put on the pressure of being a business owner and running your own company. It feels like it is on you to predict what's gonna happen down the pike. And we're all freaking out. Just want you to know we're all freaking out. Well, I've brought on an amazing guest this week to break this concept down. Jason Pfeiffer, who's the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, who has a great perspective on this because he gets to interview the best of the best in all areas of life, people who are literally successful at business building and creating and making impact in the world. And I brought him on to discuss his new book that just dropped last week, Build for Tomorrow. Jason Pfeiffer is also the host of the Build for Tomorrow podcast. But here's the subtitle of the book, An Action Plan for Embracing Change, Adapting Fast, and Future-Proofing Your Career. I love this conversation with Jason as we break down what he calls the four phases of change that we all are faced with. It's a cycle that we have to navigate through. He has so much wisdom, a lot of wit as well. This is a fast-paced conversation that I think you're really going to enjoy. So if you're wondering where we're going in the future, if you have lingering doubts about what's coming down the pike and you want to know how to adapt quickly, I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation with Jason. And also be sure to pick up his new book, which is in stores everywhere. It's called Build for Tomorrow by Jason Pfeiffer. Enjoy this conversation that's wildly entertaining and super deeply impactful. Here's my combo with Jason Pfeiffer. Jason, thanks for coming on the show. So excited to have you. Jason Pfeiffer is the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. He is the host of Built, Built for Tomorrow podcast and author of the book, brand new book, Build for Tomorrow. Really, really excited to talk about the book, talk about what you're doing. Um, but just just want to say thanks for hanging out with us for a few minutes today on the podcast. Oh, hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man. So I loved you describing your book that Build for Tomorrow is a guide to resilience. I love that. Um, why? Why is it a guide to resilience? Why do you feel like that's the word to choose? And why do you feel like a book like this is needed so badly right now? Yeah, it is really needed badly right now in a moment of massive change. Well, look, let me back up. I became editor-in-chief in 2015. And when I started going out and talking to people at events, getting interviewed, the number one question that people kept asking me was, what are the qualities that you see of successful entrepreneurs? Like, What is it that makes people successful? And I will be honest with you, I didn't have an answer at the time. I was new to the role and I was just figuring things out. But I realized, you know, if this is what everyone is asking, if this is what everyone wants to know, I better have a damn good answer. I spent a lot of time talking to people and I have access to uh, uh, an unbelievable range of people. I mean, I get to talk to everybody from A-list celebrities to people running the biggest companies in the world to also just really smart people who are running mom and pop shops. And what I found that the answer was to this question was that everybody who was successful was adaptable. Mm -hmm. They had figured out how to navigate a completely unknown journey, a zigzag path, and they came out on the other side feeling like they had built the thing, not that they knew they were going to build, but rather they, they had built the thing that they were meant to build. Mm. And I wanted to know, how does that happen? How do you do that? It's abstract, it's challenging, but everybody is 
at some moment in their lives, maybe at every moment in their lives, in a journey of unpredictability, whether it's because the pandemic shook you or just because you're feeling uh, that you need a job change or that you're trying something new, whatever it is, you are in a moment like all these other people. And if I could figure out what it is that they were all doing, if I could extract that and put that down, then I think that I'd have something that's just really valuable. Uh, that's that's amazing. I think you're right. When you were, when you talk to these people, which is, again, one reason why I wanted to have you on the show is mm-hmm. not only does the book seem like the perfect book for this time, but your vantage point at Entrepreneur, um, being able to interact with people and see patterns. I love seeing patterns and trends. Is this yeah. something that all these people who are successful just have? Is it something, is resilience and adaptability something you can learn? Have, what have you experienced in your own life and your journey to get to where you are today? Is it just something you, you've had as well? Like, is is it a born thing or is it a learnable trait? Yeah, it's funny. I think that it is, I, I think that some people are naturally better than it than others, better at it than others. But I do think that it's something that you can learn. And I like to call it the conscious cycle. I feel like everyone has an opportunity to be now in the conscious cycle. What does that mean? Well, look, we are going through constant cycles of change where we are familiar with something, we're comfortable with it. Something new comes along. It is scary. It is terrifying. It is deeply uncomfortable. We we go through these four phases that, that I, I've found, the four phases of change, which is panic, adaptation, new normal, and then you get to wouldn't go back. Wouldn't go back is where the thing that is new is now so valuable to you that you wouldn't want to go back to a time before you had it. And that's a cycle. That's one complete cycle. And now you have this new thing. And then eventually what happens? Well, the new thing becomes the comfortable thing. It becomes the old thing. And then some other new thing comes along and the cycle begins anew. And what we need to do, look, we've all gone through that. We've all experienced it. We've all seen the value of it in some way. The problem is that we often forget it. And so a moment, you can pick any moment. You can pick this moment right now. You could be because you're reading the book. It could be because of anything. But you need to be in the conscious cycle, which means that you need to be aware that you are in one of these cycles. You need to watch it happen so that by the end of it, when you reach this new wouldn't go back moment, you can say, aha, This is the lesson that I must carry forward so that when it happens again, and it will happen again, that we can say, I know what happened last time. This is going to be uncomfortable. I'm going to feel like I'm jumping off a cliff. I am going to land on my feet. I just know it. And then once you have that comfort, you have the freedom to do so much more. Oh, 100% true. I mean, when you were describing that, that's my story. Uh, building my first business was like the scariest thing ever because I did, I was the Great Recession pushed me into starting a business, didn't know what I was doing. But after a few years of becoming successful, surprisingly, in that and becoming in, in my niche at the time, which was music production, audio niche, I was like the biggest YouTube channel, the biggest brand in that space. Mm-hmm. And I got comfortable again. And when I felt the nudge to break into the online business space, because I was coaching people and all these different niches and like, man, I, I really would be excited about teaching people business and how I built my business scared the crap out of me. And, I, and I, yeah. I, I felt like I went back to the beginning of that cycle you described where I was like, but no, no, I'm comfortable here. But then I was reminded, but I was uncomfortable before I adapted before I'm sure I can do it again. I would love for you to break down that the cycle again, those four phases. You said the first is panic. Yes. Tell me about that a bit more, because I think that's what people identify with. But can you, I think there's some empathy there. If you can say that that's a legitimate part of a cycle. So tell me about that. Oh, it is. It is absolutely legitimate part of a cycle. And it's so natural. What we want is comfort. 
And we should want comfort. There's nothing wrong with comfort. There's nothing wrong with being happy, with finding something that you're good at, and with wanting to maximize that, to live inside of that. Who doesn't want that? The problem is just that the world doesn't accommodate that very well. The world is constantly changing. And so if you hold on too long, you're eventually going to get outmoded. That's the only thing that's going to happen. I think that the thing that drives the panic most is that when change comes along, the first thing you see is loss. Mm. And that that's, of course, of course, the first thing that you're going to see is loss. That's natural. You are familiar with something. Now there is change and you are equating it with loss. You are no longer able to do or whatever the thing that you used to do, or at least can't do it in the same way. And then we extrapolate the loss. That's what causes the panic. So loss is easier to see than gain because the gain is hidden. It's far away. It's in the future. You don't know how to define it. You may not even be able to see it. You just have to kind of guess at what the gain is. Loss you see immediately and then you extrapolate it, which is to say that you say, well, because I'm losing this over here, I'm going to lose that over there. And I have seen this not just in people, but throughout history. Uh, I love digging into the history of innovation because mm. I feel like sometimes the most valuable way to understand what's happening today is to look back at similar versions of things that happened before because the full story has been told. Right here, I can tell you all day long that the thing that you're doing right now is going to turn into this or that, but you know what? We don't, we don't have the full story. You look backwards and you see the full story. So look, I'll tell you one really fast because I really love it. There was a time most of human history, a time in which if you wanted to listen to music, the only way you could do that was to have a human being playing an instrument in front of you. Mm. And then late 1800s, early 1900s, that radically changed with the phonograph, the first machine that can capture sound and play it back to you. Absolutely mind-blowing. Just think about that. Completely mind-blowing of the time. Consumers were fascinated musicians were terrified mm. because now musicians are looking at this thing and saying, I am going to be replaced. John Philip Sousa, the one of the most famous uh, musicians of the time, composer, he wrote all those famous marches that yeah. you know, da, 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 da. John Philip Sousa was a major opponent of mm. recorded music. And he wrote these really amazing arguments against it. And I'm going to just share one of them. This ran in something called Appleton's Magazine. And I, I think 1907, somebody may have to fact check me on that. So he writes that when recorded music enters the home, when you bring a phonograph into the home, it will replace all forms of live music. Nobody <laughs> will perform in your home once you have a machine, because of course, why would you? Wow. Now that you have a machine doing it, why would anybody ever record? And so now that all forms of live music have been replaced in the home, mothers who used to sing to their children will no longer sing to their children. Wow. Because again, why would a mother do that when she has the machine to do it? And because children grow up to imitate their mothers, the children will now grow up to imitate the machines. And thus we will raise a generation of machine babies. And <laughs> the thing is you laugh and you should. Oh yeah. It's so good. This is so good. It's so good, isn't it? But it's so natural. That yeah. is what I call extrapolating the loss right? I see something change and it has caused a 
shift in the way that I'm familiar with something, I equate that with loss mm. because this thing is lost. That thing will also be lost because that thing is also be lost. That thing will also be lost, which is how you can go from being comfortable in your job to one thing changing. And suddenly you're like, I don't know who I am anymore. And everybody hates me. And I don't know. Right. That's how we do it. And so we got to figure out a better way. We got to figure out a way to get past this panic. And one of the ways to do that is to figure out how to extrapolate the gain. Mm. Can we ask ourselves some simple questions like, what does this new thing teach me? How am I operating in a new way? And can that be put to good use? You can start to identify things. I mean, if John Philip Sousa had done that, one of the things that he might've thought was, well, okay, recorded music enables me to record my music. And that means that people who are in places that I cannot travel to can now hear my music. Perhaps they can even compensate me for that by buying my music. Mm. Now I've got a completely different business model and I've got a, a way in which to bring all sorts of other people into the production process. This is amazing. Now we can start extrapolating again. And that's exactly what you saw. I mean, look, you and I are talking right now. Yeah into microphones. We're using a recording system. People are listening to, to us on devices that they also listen. These things are all made possible by the phonograph. Yep. All of it. John Philip Sousa couldn't see it, but it was there. Yeah. And no, it's an interesting point. I love the story because it's hilarious. And you're, you're right. When you have the history, you have the full story and the hindsight. Um, you know, one thing that's been helpful, my wife taught me from a, co a mindset coach she worked with is to ask yourself the question, when you're in that panic mode, Mm -hmm. And this is a great point when there's change and I hate change in general. I'm so routinized, which is a strong, strong suit, but it's a shadow side. But when change mm -hmm. happens or there's something where like you, to your point, you're extrapolating, this is going to go downhill. This is only bad. She says to ask yourself, you know, what else could be true? Just what else could be yeah. true? That might be true. It might be all going to pot. No one will ever play live music, but what else could be true? And that's kind of what you said, potentially John Philip Sousa could have done. My question for you is though, do, some people might push back and say, yeah, I totally see these inflection points when everything was changing and industry was changing. And then there were some really innovative, creative people, the Steve Jobs of the world that saw the innovation and took it. But I'm just a normal person. I'm not super creative. I, I'm going to miss the opportunity. How could I adapt? Because I'm, you know, I'm going to be passed over by somebody else who sees the change because everyone believes that you can profit off of change and, and collapse and panic, but they don't think it's them that's going to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's a great, I mean, look, it's a really great point. And you're right that not everyone is going to be that first mover. Not everyone is going to be that innovator. But I think that what you need to do is start by not looking around at what the change is. Stop looking at the loss, stop focusing on the panic, and start with yourself. Because Although change may have come to you, although maybe you are not in a position to be the next Steve Jobs to innovate your way out of this, what you definitely can do is identify the part of you that is not changing, the value that you can bring to other people or to the world that is not going to change. And this is something that was a completely unfamiliar way of thinking to me until... I started talking with entrepreneurs. I, you know, I mean, quick backstory. I started as a community newspaper reporter and all I wanted to do was be a newspaper reporter. I identified with it so much. People would ask me, what do you do? I would say, I'm a newspaper reporter and I loved it. And then 
a couple years in, the newspaper industry started looking scary, man. Mm. It started looking scary. It's lots of layoffs, lots of shifts. And I said, I don't know that I want to be here long for this ride. But one of the scariest parts about that was I had identified as a newspaper reporter. Now, suddenly, I'm not. If I'm not a newspaper reporter, what am I? I've spent all this time saying yeah. I'm a newspaper reporter. Now I'm nothing. And I've gone through shifts like that. I did it again with magazines. And then I started talking to entrepreneurs. And entrepreneurs do this super interesting thing where they have a really good distinction between what they do and why they do it. Mm. You know, the newspaper reporter is a what. It is an action. It is a task. It is the expression of action. But it is not why I'm doing something. Why I'm doing something is deeper than that. Mm. I came up with this little exercise to try to figure this out. And it goes like this. Imagine that someone comes up to you at a party and asks you what you do. And what are you going to do? I know what you're going to do. You're going to talk about your tasks. Mm -hmm. I'm a newspaper reporter. I do this. Okay, great. Cool. Let's run it again. Somebody comes up to you at a party and they ask what you do. You can't talk about your tasks. Anything that you just said the first time, you can't say. What are you going to talk about? I think that probably what you're going to talk about is your skills. So mm. for me, in you know, newspaper reporter, the first time it would have been, I'm a newspaper reporter. The second time it might have been, well, what do I do? Uh, I, I go around and I interview people and I take their information and I process it in a way that's useful for others. Really good at that. Okay, cool. What we're doing here is we're digging. We're yeah. digging, we're digging, we're digging. Out, out of the stuff that we normally associate ourselves and you go down to something that is more core, more unchangeable, dug so deep into the foundation that it does not change, even though the thing that you're doing every day might. All right, one more time. Somebody comes up to you at a party, they ask what you do. Can't talk about your tasks, can't talk about your skills. What do you talk about? You talk about your core. Mm. You talk about the thing that is so core to you that it drove you to develop the skills that enabled you to do the tasks. And that can be summed up in a sentence. It should be summed up in a sentence. It can be really basic. I'll tell you what it is for me. I tell stories in my own voice. That's what I figured out. I tell stories, stories, really, really, really important that I use the word stories for myself. Why? Because it's not newspaper stories. Mm -hmm. It's not magazine stories. It's not books. It's not talks. It's any or all or none of those things. I tell stories in my own voice. There was a time where I worked at publications where I was writing in somebody else's voice. Yeah. I would, you know, I worked at men's health. I was writing in the men's health voice. I'm not interested in doing that anymore. I tell stories in my own voice. It does not matter now what you do to me. You can't take that away from me. Mm. I mean, Graham, after this conversation, if I open my inbox and it turns out that I learn uh, either entrepreneur has decided that they hate me and they are firing me or that the company has closed. You cannot take away, I tell stories in my own voice. You can't because I'll just do something else. I am now more flexible than I mm. was before. And so to your question, what can every individual person do? What they can do is they can identify the part of themselves that is core, that other opportunities can evolve and rotate around. And that is how you will ultimately find your place in a changing world. Fine. You are not the person to invent the iPad. Fine. There was only one person sure. who could do that or iPhone or whatever. The hell. But you can be the person who says, you know what, what I'm really good at, what is my core? My core is, um, it, my core is, uh, is helping people succeed. Yeah. That's my core. And uh, the way that I did that before no longer works. 
But what I'm really good at is helping people succeed. That is my core. I will find people. I will find ways that they can succeed. I will help them do that. Does not matter what technology that is. Does not matter what the needs are. Because this is the core. This is the thing that I'm good at doing. And the more you focus on that, the more you will be able to move forward. Oh man, there's so much there. That was that was absolutely brilliant. I really appreciate you sharing that. I think this is something that I am passionate about that's not talked enough about is the separation of identity from what you do. Because mm-hmm. to your point, when the pandemic happens, when you know your employer lays you off, when you know there's a shift in what people want, so your business is no longer relevant, that may crumble and you have to adapt. But if your identity is so attached to that thing, then you died with it as opposed to like, well, I no longer do that anymore, but I am still who I am and I can still find ways to serve people powerfully. Even when something bad doesn't happen, if you feel the itch to make a change, but you're so Mm -hmm. closely identified as what you were, that was always my struggle was I identified my whole life as musician. And then, you know, I wanted to be a rock star that didn't turn out the way I hoped. And so I stumbled into online business teaching musicians how to produce their music. And when that blew up, that became the thing I was successful at, became known for. Got people writing articles about me and like, oh, oh, that's who I am now. This was my stamp on the world. And when my own desire started to shift and I was more interested in business, I got scared of my own desires because yeah. I was like, oh no, I'm the music guy. What if I'm what if I'm like uh, you know, um, Michael Jordan, who thinks, oh, I'm good at basketball. I'll probably be good at baseball too. And then I'll go realize I'm not good at baseball. I should have stayed at basketball. That was the analogy in my head. So afraid because my identity was Graham, music guy, music educator, stay there. That's your lane of success. And it took me, I waited three years. I punted on starting the second business for three years out of fear because my identity was too attached to it. When the core of what I do is I empower and encourage people to succeed. And I was doing that through music. And yeah. now I'm doing that through online business. And, but man, there's so much there that we, we could unpack forever. But I think there's freedom on the other side of what you described, which is getting to that core, going through that exercise, and then you can adapt a lot faster. Yeah, I, I love that. I love the way that you went through it for yourself. And so you can really understand it for others. And, you know, it's funny, as you were talking <laughs> and used the Michael Jordan analogy, which is a great one, I... <laughs> when I was a kid, I got a Michael Jordan baseball like trading card, and I and I've st- I hung on to it. I still have it because I thought it would be worth something one day, and it's, it certainly has not. Womp, womp. But uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> but um, but you know what? I mean, I've never my, I've never talked to Michael Jordan. Uh, I've, I've had the pleasure of talking to a lot of athletes. Jordan is not one of them. But I would imagine that in a way, the Michael Jordan baseball adventure was not a failure hmm. because. Possibly what it taught him was, you know, there's something outside of basketball. There's just something. Don't know what it is, but there's something. I'm able to go out and do this, and I'm still Michael Jordan. I'm still me. I still have my talents and interests, and uh, and I don't need basketball. I don't need to be on the Chicago Bills to be a successful person. And eventually he, you know, he was successful in many other ways. He stayed in sports, but he figured it out. And I think that sometimes just taking that step Mm. outside of what your comfort is, even if it doesn't immediately become the next big success, it taught you something. It was the step outside. You know, it was like, um, it was like uh, walking outside on a really hot day. And the first thing that happens is you just get like a blast of mm. heat in your face. And it's not very pleasant, but now you're outside. Yeah. <laughs> you acclimated. And yeah. then you can do more. 
That's so good. Yeah. And that, that goes back to what you said about we see the costs immediately, but we don't see the gains because they're either so far in the future or especially in this world where it's all about connecting with other humans. Uh, like sometimes connections can be valuable, but not for years. You don't see how it plays out for years. So mm-hmm. it, you can't judge something by the immediate response or the immediate lack of fruit, I guess. Don't look yeah. at a tree waiting for it to grow an apple. It might take a while. It's coming, you know? <laughs> um, That's right. I, I, I want to wrap this up. I know you're, you're short on time. This has been amazing. But I, I, one thing you describe yourself as that I, I love, I think would be helpful, mm-hmm. you describe yourself as a nonstop optimism machine. Yeah. Which I love that. Um, where do you think that comes from? And how has that benefited you in life in general? So it doesn't come naturally. I was definitely more pessimistic as a kid. I was not very comfortable with change as a kid. And I think a lot of that came down to a discomfort with myself and a lack of clarity about my own identity so that I would start to attach myself to other things. Like I'm a punk kid. And that means that anything that happens in punk is happening to me. Mm. And so I would take everything that's happening really seriously. And along the way, and it took a very long time, I, 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 well, I'll tell you the first thing, the first moment that I can remember is that, do you know who Dave Eggers is? Oh, that name sounds really familiar, but yeah, remind so he, me. He's a, he's a writer. He wrote, uh, his kind of breakout work was called A Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius. And okay. he's written a number of novels. That was a memoir. He's written a number of novels. Anyway, when he, I don't know how old he was, but um, de- this is decades ago, he did an interview with some student newspaper. And the student newspaper reporter had asked him about selling out because I think he had used to do like indie magazines and then he bought, you know, then he got like a big book contract or whatever and asked him about selling out. And, and, uh, and he, however he answered it, but then he stewed on the question afterwards and he wrote this very long thing and sent it to the, sent it to the student reporter. And then somehow it made its way onto the internet. And I read it when I was in college and I was a, I was the kind of guy who would accuse people of selling out without question, right? These bands that I loved, they'd be like, ah, you got a record label, you so sell out. And Dave argued to this reporter that what he is committed to is saying yes. Mm. He is a yes person. He wants to look at options and he wants to say yes. New experiences come his way and he wants to say yes. Because saying no doesn't get you anywhere. Saying no keeps you in one place. And fine, that might be a familiar place, but it's not an exciting place. Mm. And so yes, yes, yes. And I read that and I remember thinking, I don't have an argument against it. Mm. Uh, I, I have been accusing bands that I love of selling out for a long time, and I don't have an argument against what he is saying right now. Yes is the better way. Mm. It just is. Yes is the pathway to more experiences. Are those experiences all going to be great? Nah. But are they going to teach me something? Am I going to grow? Am I going to make new connections? Am I going to discover things about myself? Am I going to reinvent myself in ways that I cannot begin to imagine until I say yes and I go somewhere? Yes. And so I started trying to do it. That essay made a real, or it wasn't even an essay, it was like a little rant. That, That thing made a big impact on me. And I will tell you that 
just like at the beginning of our conversation where I talked about the conscious cycle, I think that oftentimes the first thing that we need to do is just prove to ourselves that trying something different works. Mm. And the more that we do it, the more that it works, right? The more that if you say yes the first time and something, anything good comes out of it, you're more empowered to say yes the next time, to say yes the next time until you're at the point where somebody offers you a big opportunity and it sounds scary mm. and you don't feel like you're even prepared to do it, but you're going to say yes anyway. That's how it works. Everybody who I've talked to has at some point or another had this moment where, they, I mean, everybody, I, I just, I, I was just, I, you know, I was just in Jimmy Fallon's office talking to him for the magazine. And, you know, we, we were talking, he, I mean, he basically, he did a great job on Saturday Night Live. Then he tried to make some movies and he bombed. It was terrible. And um, spent like five years trying to, trying to like build his career back up. And then eventually Lauren Michaels calls him up and says, um, hey, do you want to uh, try out for a late night talk show? And Jimmy could have said no. Yeah. He doesn't know how to do that. Yeah. And he didn't, he, he, but why would you do that? Why would you say no to that? Why would you say no to any big opportunity? And I, I realize that that sounds kind of obvious. Lauren Michaels calls you up and says, do you want to be a sure. late night talk show host? But you know what? I think that people every single day get versions of that, their own versions of that, a really great, exciting opportunity that they say no to because it just sounds different and it sounds scary and it sounds like something that they don't exactly know how to do. And I'm telling you that the way to get into it, the only way to get good, only way to get good is to say yes. Wow, this sounds like your next book. <laughs> yes is the better way. <laughs> There's so much there. It reminds me of that Jim Jimmy uh, Jim Carrey movie, The Yes Man. Remember that one? Yeah. <laughs> that guru is like, yes, yes. Oh, yeah, such, yeah, yeah. But you know, it's true. There, there's so much truth to that. I mean, I, I think just the the summation of that in my, my mind, I keep hearing the word, you know, fixed mindset versus growth mindset or scarcity mm -hmm. versus abundance. Like it, there's two ways to look at the world and saying yes is scary because you don't know what could happen. But it, are you the person that views it as something bad could happen? or something good could happen because both are true, but it's just how you look at the world. And I think optimists tend to do better because they do open themselves up to new possibilities. It's not that they're not scared, but they at least say yes. And that's the beginning of almost everything good that could happen. Yeah. And the more you do it, the better you feel. I mean, I, I'm just remembering now when you said the word optimist, that that was basically the premise of your question. And the answer is that I got that way by doing it enough times that I got to a place where I realized that pessimism doesn't get me anywhere. So good. Yeah. And that's not to say that I don't have my moments where I don't look at something and I sure. say, I hate this. When my six-year-old is watching like a, like a Minecraft YouTube star and I look at this and 27 million people have watched this video and I say, I hate this. I hate that this guy is successful. I don't know what this is. I, it makes me feel old. I don't like this at all. I get it. I, everybody's got those moments. Yep. But I find that those moments don't get you anywhere. And yes, does. That's so good. Uh, Jason, this has been amazing. Uh, the book is Build for Tomorrow, an action plan for embracing change, adapting fast, and future-proofing your career. Pick it up now wherever books are sold. And the podcast is also called Build for Tomorrow. Amazing podcast, by the way. Um, Thank you. 
Jason, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for sharing with my audience and best of luck with all you're doing in the future. It may be the, the, ne- the next book, the yes book. <laughs> I'll read that one too. Yeah, I, yeah, I know. Well, I'll, uh, I will give you a very, very hearty uh, shout out in the credits if that becomes the sure, next book. It sounds- it's a great idea. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, Graham, I felt I really like we had something. Yeah. Thank you, Jason. <laughs> Have a great rest of your day, my man. Thank you. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jason. Be sure to pick up his book, Build for Tomorrow, an action plan for embracing change, adapting fast, and future-proofing your career. It's available now wherever books are sold. And as always, thanks for checking out the episode. It's good to have you. Hope you have an amazing week, and I'll see you on another episode real soon.